Well, if you haven't picked up on it yet, there's a football game tonight. It involves Patriots and the Giants, and much of the media conversation with these kind of events revolves around the quarterbacks. You've got Eli Manning, who's the quarterback for the Giants, and Tom Brady, who quarterbacks for the Patriots. And I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Um, Imagine that after the Patriots' last playoff victory, they decided to bench their quarterback, Tom Brady. Even though he wasn't injured, even though he had taken them all the way through the season and to the point where they were now ready to play in the big game, they're going to bench him. And instead, they charge him with getting a guy named Brian Hoyer ready to play. Most of you have never heard of Brian Hoyer. He is the backup quarterback for the, for the Patriots. Now, how do you think getting benched on the eve of the big day, how do you think Tom Brady would feel about that? I think he wouldn't be a very happy camper about that. And I, I bring up this, if, in case you are a Patriots fan, purely hypothetical scenario, relax, Tom's going to play in the game. Um, because Moses faces a very similar kind of disappointment, um, kind of like this level of disappointment on steroids as they are right on the edge of the promised land and God says no to Moses in terms of his entering the land. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 3, we'll pick that up in just a minute in, in the 23rd verse where we see Moses face this disappointment from God in an exemplary fashion. As we do that, I'd like to invite you to pray with me too. Father, Jesus taught us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And I, I pray that that would be what comes to your people today through this word. It's a strong word. It's a challenging word. But we trust that it's a good word for us. And that your kindness is wrapped in your strong commands to us as your people. So may your love prevail even in this text today in our lives. Help us to receive it by faith. Honor it. As we leave this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 23. Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please. Let me go over and see the good land beyond, beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and Look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So Moses is pleading with God to let him enter the land, and God flatly refuses. Why on earth would God refuse, of all people, Moses, 
a request like this? Um, why couldn't Moses go in? Moses, Moses is one of our heroes. People named children after Moses, okay? He's one of the great men of faith. Hebrews touts him as that. Here's an instance in Hebrews chapter, <coughs> excuse me, 3 in the New Testament. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. He's a man celebrated for his faithfulness. In the book of Numbers, it says, Moses was very meek or very humble, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. He is the most humble man on the planet. He's celebrated for his faithfulness. Why say no to Moses? And the answer um, is a little befuddling at first because here in verse 26 and also in chapter 1, it says it's the people's fault. Moses says, the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And he places the blame for his exclusion from the land squarely on God's people. But if you flip to the end of the book of Deuteronomy and you read in chapter 32 about the same scenario, you read this. God says, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people, Moses, the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kedesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you, Moses, did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. So in Deuteronomy 32, God says, Moses, it was your sin that's keeping you out of the land when you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. It's a reference to when Moses hit the rock twice with the staff to make the water come out, and there was an element of disobedience, evidently, in that somehow. How do you reconcile those two things? Is it the people's sin, or is it Moses' sin? And the answer, usually in those kind of situations, is yes. Psalm 106 gives us a clue. It says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. So it may be the way we can put these things together is that the people, in their sin, provoked Moses to anger and caused him, in one sense, to sin. So probably both of these things were happening at the same time. But what I want you not to miss in the midst of this is that for a single infraction... Perhaps something as common as an angry outburst and a prideful taking of matters into his own hands, of doing things his own way, Moses is forbidden entrance into the promised land. What I want us to think about it as we think about why Moses is kept out of land is that sin must be more serious than we think it is. If this single infraction can cause Moses to be kept out of the promised land, especially it must be more serious for those of us who are in leadership in the church. Um, James makes it explicit. He says in chapter 3 of his book, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
in light of that, let me, let me ask you, please pray for your leaders. Please pray for us. Um, perhaps especially for me, since I have the biggest mouth in the church, pray for me. Um, pride stalks us all, but especially pastors. Pastors are prone to arrogance and pride like few people that I know. Um, Martin Luther understood this. He said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. So pray for our leaders. Pray that we would be humble. Um, I've posted some links on the leader blog on our website to help you know how to pray for us. And we would greatly appreciate it if you would be faithful Continue in faithfulness in praying for us. Many of you I know already do. Moses is forbidden to enter that land. Um, really, perhaps his greatest longing, his life's dream was to lead the people into that land. And he is effectively benched on the eve of the big game. And if that's not enough, he's charged with getting his back up uh, Joshua, ready to go in in his place. Uh, look at verse 28 in our passage. It says, Charge Joshua, Moses, and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So how does Moses respond to getting benched? With humble obedience to his great king. See, this has to be really hard for Moses to not get to do this thing he's so long to do and then be charged with preparing his assistant to go in in his place. That's tough. But for Moses, it's not ultimately about Moses. He really means what he said back in verse 24 when he says, God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. He really has a vision of the greatness of God that is humbling to him, so much so that he obeys God even when it costs him his great dream, even when God says no to his great longing. See, in Moses' life, this is the result of a life of training and preparation for this decision, for this response. You know, I've thought a lot about Moses' life with respect to why he was the humblest man on earth. Um, one reason is because he was a man who suffered greatly um, in many different ways. And he witnessed the suffering of those he loved, especially the people of God when they were in captivity in Egypt. He saw the great miraculous deliverance of God. The plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision of manna in the wilderness. An entire nation was fed by the hand of God. Moses saw that. He saw God himself, his backside on that mountain. He saw God's great power to deliver from impossible odds. He saw God's radical holiness that could kill a man on the spot. Moses feared God. He saw the great price of redemption because Moses was the one who slaughtered that ram himself, taught the priests how to carry out the elaborate rituals that were required to approach a radically holy God. See, Moses had been training 
for this response all of his life. And now his humility enabled him to obey God, even when it ran contrary to his greatest desires. How do you respond when God says no to your prayers, to your dreams, to what you long for? Are you training for that day when it comes? Are you considering others as more important than you are, better than you are? The cornerstone of humility, perhaps. Haddon Robinson tells a story about a young woman. She goes to her pastor, and she says, Pastor, I have a besetting sin, and I want your help. She says, I come to church on Sunday. I can't help thinking I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. She says, I know I not, ought not think that, but I can't help it. I want you to help me with it. And the pastor said, Mary, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. <laughs> the question is, are you training yourself not to make the horrible mistake of thinking too highly of yourself? Are you humbly serving others, thinking that they are more important, that they are better than you? And are you training yourself to see the greatness of God as it presents itself to you, to give Him the glory that He deserves? There's a, a marvelous story Lee Eckloff tells. It comes from a, from a Wall Street Journal article about the life of Joe DiMaggio, great, great baseball player in days gone by. Uh, it was the summer of 1945. World War II had ended, and all the former soldiers, including famous baseball players like DiMaggio, were making their way back to the States after serving overseas in World War II. Joe DiMaggio is just trying to be Yankee fan Joe DiMaggio that day. He's sitting up in the, some of the mezzanine seats at Yankee Stadium, just trying to blend in as he gets ready to rejoin his team after military service. Some of the fans see him, and one of the fans starts chanting his name. Pretty soon the whole stadium is chanting his name. Joe, Joe, Joe DiMaggio, over and over. Joe has his little four-year-old son with him, Joe Jr. And he looks down at Joe Jr. to see if he's picking up on the tribute that's being paid to his dad. And little Joe says, See, Daddy, everybody knows me. <laughs> There's a fellow named Steve Farish who reflects on this, and he says, The junior Joe DiMaggio made the innocent child's mistake of assuming all the glory at the Yankee Stadium that summer afternoon in 1945 belonged to him and not to his father. Human beings, however, make a far less innocent mistake when we live as if our lives were all about us and our glory rather than about our Heavenly Father and His glory. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 21, that the fundamental sin of the human heart involves a purposeful failure to honor God as God or to give thanks to Him, to fail to give thanks to Him. That is, to give the Lord glory in the form of worship that He alone is due. See, the simple act of giving thanks, earnest, intentional, glad thanks to God, exalts God as great and humbles us as needful. 
You know, my favorite response uh, to someone who arrogantly contends that they don't need God is basically to say, why don't you show me? If you will stop your heart from beating for just five minutes and then kick it back up again, then I'll listen to your argument that you don't need God. Okay, ready? Go. Nobody takes you up on that. Nobody can take you up on that. We are so needful of God. Giving thanks to God is so appropriate even for the beating of our heart. Could you be honestly described as thankful? Would that be appropriate to describe you as thankful? See, every day, the way we treat those around us, the way we acknowledge and submit to God's good will for us is training us in Moses-like humility so that we can obey God even when it runs counter to our deepest longings. Now, in this story about Moses, it's a tough story for Moses, but there's grace even in God's discipline. God does take him up. He does let him see the land that his people are going to go into. There's grace, too, for God's people. There is Joshua given to them to lead them into the land. And there's grace for us, too, that we might learn from Moses' example. Because Moses now moves from his example to a direct and clear call for obedience as he moves into chapter 4. He says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. So Moses has modeled this humble obedience before God. Now he is calling for it strongly. Listen up. He says, do this stuff or else. Moses says, it's a matter of life and death. And then he reminds them of a time when their disobedience cost thousands of lives. That story of Baal Peor is told in Numbers 25. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's subtle. And then these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Okay? So you get the picture. They're out, you know, <clears throat> fooling around with the locals. And they get invited then, out on top of that, to worship their gods. And they do. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, to their god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. See, Moses is preparing them for the absolute, non-negotiable, essential priority of obeying God's commands that he's giving to them that are to shape their life in the land. The covenant, the stipulations of the covenant. It matters for their joy. It matters for life itself and the reputation of their God, as we're about to see in verse 5 through 8. 
Moses continues and says, See, I've taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So again, strong call to obedience. Do this. Keep this. Do this over and over. He's commanding them to, to be an obedient people. And he says the reason is because the peoples are watching you. They are watching you. As Chris Wright puts it, Israel lived on a very public stage. And two things impacted the nations as they watched Israel. The first is the nearness of their God in verse 7. Near, especially when they pray, they cry out to him, and he delivers them. The second thing is the righteousness of their laws. There in verse 8. As they live out what God has taught them, their obedience puts God on display for the nations to see. William Barclay made an interesting comment. He said, a saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Could that be said of you? Does watching you make it easier for your neighbors to believe in God? If you were on one of those creepy reality shows where they just followed you around all the time, would that help your neighbors believe in God? Are you that faithful and glad in your obedience to God? Don't miss the emphasis here. God is intent on revealing himself to the nations, to Israel's neighbors. But don't miss, too, that we have neighbors who are watching us. But what do they see? Is it easier for them to believe in God because of our radical obedience to God's laws? And here's the big one. This is the summary of all God's laws in Romans 13. The commandments, Paul says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Are you obeying this central, vital, non-negotiable command to love your neighbor? Do your neighbors know that you care about them? I read an, an amazing story. Uh, Terry Monk tells it. He says there's a man, zero spiritual interest, but he lives next door to a Christian and they have a casual relationship, talk over the back fence, borrow lawnmowers, stuff like that. He says, then the non-Christian's wife was stricken with cancer, and she died three months later. 
Here's part of a letter that he wrote after his wife had passed away. He says, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and I walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. All night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. And when the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. Then he writes, I go to church now, my neighbor's church, a religion that can produce the kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. All the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is it easier for your neighbors to believe because of the way that you have cared for them? Because of how you have obeyed the central command of your great God. Moses continues in chapter 9. He says, take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So take care. He says, watch out. Keep your soul diligently so you don't forget what you have seen. And in particular, he's thinking of their encounter with God on Mount Sinai when God spoke to them from the fiery mountaintop and gave to them those Ten Commandments inscribed on stone tablets. Um, those Ten Words, those Ten Commandments are the heart of their covenant with God. Um, this story is told in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And the Ten Commandments are going to be given again in Deuteronomy 5. We'll look at it in just a little bit, a couple weeks. And then the whole law that follows in Deuteronomy is really ordered around those Ten Commandments. Um, but of special concern here is that those commandments should be taught to your children and to their children. This is common in Deuteronomy. 
says uh, Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall walk of, or talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you arise. Deut Deuteronomy 11, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. It is of the utmost concern of Moses here that the heart of this covenant, these central commands, these ten commands about how the people of God are to live are passed on from generation to generation. And so I had a brilliant idea. Let's teach our children the Ten Commandments. What a great idea. Um, over the next months, we're going to be walking through an extended look at the Ten Commandments. Let's teach our kids to memorize and to know what the Ten Commandments mean. Um, uh, toward that end, if you go to that same leader blog this week on the website, there's a couple of links there to get you started. One's a book you could purchase, another's just a little guide you could use in a family devotion. But let's get started teaching these things to our children. Um, Martin Luther gave a great approach to this. He has a little uh, writing called A Simple Way to Pray. And he talks about how to use the Ten Commandments as a guide to prayer. He says, you look at each commandment. He says, I divide each commandment into four parts, he says. And I think of each commandment as, and he gives four things. First, I think of the commandment as instruction, he says, which is really what is intended to be. And consider what the Lord God demands of me so earnestly. So look at the commandment, think of instruction. What is it teaching me? Secondly, he says, I turn it into thanksgiving. I thank God for his good command to me and recognize that it is good for me. The third thing he says, I turn it into a confession because he knows what we all know. We have not kept the commands. So we are instructed. We give thanks for that instruction and we confess that we've not kept it. And lastly, he says, I turn it into a prayer. We pray that we would be found increasingly faithful to keep the commandments. So instruction, thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. It's probably better in German, I'm sure. Instruction, thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. You do not have to have kids to do that with the Ten Commandments. So if you're single or married without kids, then this works for you just as well. So Moses has modeled for us a great humility that fuels a most difficult obedience for him. And now he is calling all Israel and us to follow his example, to obey our great king such that our neighbors and even the nations will see God in the obedient lives we live and it will be easier for them to believe and to pass those central core commands of God on to our children. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, Moses challenges us to trust you in ways that we don't really want to trust you. We'd like you to say yes all the time to us. But we acknowledge that you are the great God. There's no other God like you. Definitely not us. 
And so we know that the wisest, best course is to gladly submit to you. God, help us to trust you as you ask us to do that. Even when you say no to our greatest longing. Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful to live these lives before our neighbors, loving them, caring about them. I pray even today you'd open up doors of hospitality in our homes as we watch that game. I pray that you'd grant us occasion to show our neighbors how much we care about them even today. And God, help us pass these on to the children. May these mark their soul. May this wisdom guard and safeguard their lives as they live and come to know you and follow you. Lord, we, we look at this, and this yoke can be heavy to us. I pray that it would be uh, like a cup of cold water, especially to those who are suffering today, that this call to obedience would come to them as a, as a word of hope, a word that strengthens their faith. God, protect them and strengthen them especially. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.